Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, May 9th, which means it's Media Monday. John Kelly and I talk about Vice possibly selling off their content studio, the most valuable part of the company. And of course, we'll swap some Shane Smith stories. And later on, we talk about CNN's new boss, Chris Licht, and how he's trying to differentiate himself from his predecessor, Jeff Zucker. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Media Monday, everybody. I'm joined today by the boss man, John Kelly, to discuss, obviously, the media. Uh, this is really an opportunity for uh, John and I to just bullshit. Honestly, we don't have to talk on the phone that much during the week because this, this is our, like, catch-up set. This is how we talk normally, honestly. It's true, <laughs> although I'm sorry I missed you last week. I was out in L.A. You missed a great night at the Tower Bar. Uh, Matt and Dylan showed up. Virgin, they couldn't make it. My image of Bellany at Tower Bar is, like, everyone's sort of coming over to like tap him on the shoulder and say, what's up? Because everyone, he knows everyone. Is that what happens? There was definitely at least one very, very, very successful showrunner who uh, talked to Matt. So yes, yeah, so he is, um, he cuts quite a presence there. We had a great night, and, and but the biggest, most eventful, there was like a crazy scene happening across the street at that, um, that rodeo bar, the place that has the mechanical bull. Yes, what's it called? Saddle Ranch, Saddle Ranch. Yeah, there, there definitely was an amazing scene at Saddle Ranch and normally most startup dinners would be taking place more likely at a, at a joint like Saddle Ranch and Tower Bar. But uh, <laughs> I've known Jeff Klein for a long time and he hooked us up and um, we were very grateful for the patronage. I was chomping at the bit today to talk to you about Vice Media. Um, you know, Vice is the embodiment of Web 2.0 media hype. Like that's Vice News specifically had a lot of buzz that 2013, 2014, mm-hmm. 2015 era run by Shane Smith, <laughs> who uh, talks a big game and raised a ton of money. But it sounds like now, according to the information, they are looking at selling off their content studio, and they also have a ton of debt to make up for. What's going on there? Well, first, as we like to do here, a, a, a small disclosure, uh, Vice uh, has its largest uh, principal investor, TPG, which is a um, meaningful investor in Puck. Just want to uh, mention that. Um, What's happening here is both extraordinary and in some ways overdue. I, I think that um, you mentioned Shane Smith, who was this like singular figure at Vice, and and Vice was a part of this kind of four horsemen of, of Web 2.0 with BuzzFeed and Vox Media and Insider. And a decade later, it's interesting to see and, and sort of illustrative to see where they all netted out. Vox, which was always the sort of least sexy and, and least buzzy of them all, has this enormous portfolio and appears poised to be able to probably go public successfully when the, the sort of stink of, of media companies diminishes in, in the public market. I, I can't imagine to bank off on those guys. 
want to do that next six months, especially after what happened to BuzzFeed, which has seen its market cap cut in half. It, it's reduced um, its BuzzFeed news operation to to almost nothing at this point, and it's it's you know it's bought these assets in Complex and Huffington Post to supersize itself as an ad network play and a, a commerce play. The fact that BuzzFeed is a, is a public company speaks is to some success there. So where does Vice fit into this? Vice had the hubris of its founder, Shane Smith. They raised a ton of money. Uh, TBG came in uh, with about $450 million to get them to a valuation of, of $5.5 billion. I think that now they're worth about $3 billion. They're currently, according to this information article, about to sell out their studio business, which is about a quarter billion. Uh-huh. And if they can, you know, make five or six times that, they'll they'll sort of be able to, I think, to pay back the investment. But it's hard to know what what Vice is without that studio business. That's the business that creates all their shows and their podcasts. It's the core competency of Nancy Dubuque, this CEO who before coming to Vice was ran A and E and was the sort of mastermind behind like the the like ice road truckers catalog, you know, the, the, the sort of like, oh, really? yeah, it, it, she, she was, she was kind of like a, a, a Zaz minded person who knew how to make fantastic low budget shows that spoke uh-huh. to, to red America and would get renewed and syndicated, you know, parking war 74, like that, that's a testament to, to her career in, in the beginning of the kind of uh, always on um, cable universe. But what is one last, sorry, I, I'm, I'm rambling here for a second, but it, it's leading to one point. I heard, an incredible story that sort of sums up, I think, where we are now. Uh, it was from a former executive at Vice, and I'm sure you have your own Chainsmith stories, but mm-hmm. it took place years ago. And according to this person, Chainsmith is having dinner with Bob Iger, and you know Disney was an investor in Vice. And Bob Iger said to Chainsmith, according to this person, that he was prepared to consider, you know, an, an offer. At, let's call it, you know, two or three billion dollars. This person told me, and uh, Shane Smith turned him down. And this person sort of, you know, said to me, well, why did you do that? Shane Smith said, oh, because it'll be, it'll be um, a billion dollars bigger in a year. And that was the hubris that he had. And, and to found a media company like that, you had to have that kind of machismo, but it didn't entirely recognize that businesses can change very, very quickly. Yeah. And they were not made for the, the transition that was coming. Yeah, I mean, everyone in in media has a Shane Smith story, especially. And by the way, like you know, when I lived in New York, you live in New York. Like, if you work in production, news, film, and TV, whatever, like you know, people who have either worked at Vice, and a lot of when I say worked at, I mean because people cycled in and out of there very quickly. It was you know, again, I'm speaking about a different time before Nancy came in chain of command was weird and confusing and like Mm -hmm. freelancers didn't get paid for months. And it was just like, everyone has stories about that place. And it's all built on the sort of, as you say, hubris, bravado, bluster of Shane Smith. Like they opened this huge fancy office in Williamsburg, which was on brand for them. They were like Brooklyn cool, Mm -hmm. you know, in the earlier, (laughs) like five years ago, six years ago, you know, the kind of talent they would hire for Vice News, at least like they intentionally had like, you know, spacer, like earrings and like tattoos <laughs> and, and like mutton shops and shit. And it's like a little too performative. My favorite story about <laughs> Shane that I heard from one of my friends who worked there was Shane had like a ring that he wore and people that like got close to him or his like closest colleagues and friends within the company were all like given like 
a ring like by Shane that like signaled you were like close to him and like a trusted ally, which is a very like cultish, weird. Yeah, totally. I remember seeing him in Cannes at the Cannes Lion, like whatever fucking conference that is, sales. Mm -hmm. And he was like doing a live interview on CNBC and he was just like, this might've been the time they were sort of like trending downward actually. And he was like, yeah, people love us. Like they asked him like, are you looking for an acquisition? He's like, no, we're not looking for an acquisition, but you know, we have really good friends at Google and like we have really good friends at Apple. And it was just like, it was clear he was like sending out signals that the business itself didn't have the kind of ramp he thought it did and they needed to sell at some point. Um, I'm I'm actually surprised it took this long and I'm surprised that they they didn't kind of see some of the stuff coming because the first time I ever heard the word vice was in college when I studied abroad and one of my friends was from Toronto. And she was like into this like cool zine in Toronto. There was this like kind of like an alt weekly, like hipster, like magazine. And that's what Vice was. And then it sort of like built over the years and completely transformed itself. It became something like a lot of digital media companies, like not too big to fail, like just too big (laughs) um, for for its business. Yeah, there's definitely a a corollary with Adam Newman too. I feel like that that we're sort of, you know, that we can sort of pattern recognize at the stage where, you know, Shane Smith was, was not like a battle-tested entrepreneur, right? He did come up with, a, with basically a, a co-founder like a Montreal, you know, skateboarding magazine, and he was just this incredible spokesman for like this, you know, this cool new brand. I mean, you have to remember the era that Vice came up in was one where the media landscape was dominated by like the New York Times and Bloomberg and Reuters. Yep, yep, like yep. it was a very uncool scene, and he made a very relevant and lucid point, which was, how are these guys going to reach millennials? You know, in, in what yeah. world are they going to be cool? And he was a great conveyor for that. I think if you looked under the hood in retrospect, you'd find that, you know, they were doing these $150 million deals with places like Heineken, but but spending $170 million just to, to buy the traffic to, to make good on the on the terms. One of the other things that um, that people didn't fully appreciate either was because Shane Smith had started this from Humble Origins, he, he owned a lot of the company and had a lot of personal control over it. And he made his money early. Uh, one, another uh, former executive at Vice had mentioned once in passing years ago that, that he he knew things were were getting strange when all of a sudden Shane, who who again right wore rings, had that you know notable haircut, had a, a, a totally um, sort of you know Harley uh, chic look, would talk about how difficult it was to like find chateau with you know more than seven bathrooms in the south of France, and you know <laughs> for the right amount of money. So like his, you know, his trajectory changed too. This does happen in business. So a lot of these companies aren't built forever. And I imagine that Nancy DeVue probably wants to wind this down and find the suitor for the studio business as, as soon as possible because she's in the heart of her own career creatively and she will be rewarded uh, if she handles this responsibly. John, I want to take a quick break and we're going to talk about CNN and their new leader, Chris Licht, after the break. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Netflix. 
So uh, Dylan, we always like to steal Dylan's reporting and Dylan's content for this podcast. Sorry, Dylan <laughs> has a piece up that just popped at the end of last week about Chris Licks. Uh, his first week at CNN, he comes in after the tumultuous Jeff Zucker era, uh, which placed CNN at the center of the national conversation, albeit without controversies. Licks, according to Dylan, has this idea that he's going to be like the anti-Zucker and, and not in a hostile way or an antagonistic way, just that Zucker's management style was extremely hands-on. Yeah. Like Jeff, in a way that talent there loved. Um, he would send like nice emails at all hours of the day to different reporters, anchors, whatever. He was always available. I have one friend who was a producer for CNN International in Atlanta. And he was in the like uh, control room and I don't know what, it was like at night and Jeff Zucker called from New York and told a CNN international show, totally different network. I mean, same company, different network to like do something in one of their segments about Donald Trump, right? And like the fact that he was like micromanaging yeah. a show in off hours on CNN International just tells you how involved he was in the product. And so Licht, he said in this memo to the, to the company that he'll be not as in the weeds on editorial decision-making I'm just curious what your take is on that. Like, how do you run a gigantic worldwide media company, but also try to be a little more like long leash, hands off? Yeah, on one hand, I don't blame him. I think if you want to come in and, and take a job like this, and, and notably, Lick was given the title CEO, Zucker was president. So I think that they're trying to message from the very jump that Lick is going to be more corporate and that he's going to have a, a layer of remove. And there probably will be a lot of corporate responsibilities. I, I still am very fixated on this $3 billion in synergies that David Zaslav has guaranteed to Wall Street that he's going to find across all of the Warner Brothers Discovery assets. I'm, I'm very focused on the $14 billion in EBITDA he's told Wall Street he's going to deliver. Like uh -huh. when, you, when you sign your name to those numbers, you, you got to deliver it. And, and Zaslav um, is a Jack Welch protege. And, and Jack Welch's career was defined by making a promise to Wall Street and, and keeping it every quarter. So I also think that if you're like, you're not Zucker. So even if he is this masterful producer who basically created Morning Joe and, and you know did Colbert mm -hmm. and, and and figured out the CBS Morning Show, which was at the time a Herculean effort, like no one watched that thing and he found a way to, to, to make it respectable. You don't want to have the same behavior as the person you're replacing. It's not a good look. So he wants to define his job in a way that fits his personality. And I totally understand that. But as Dylan was reporting this and he and I were kind of kibbitzing about it, I had like visions of when I worked at the Times and I, I was a younger person. And I remember distinctly thinking that any competent newsroom outsider would come in and want to make certain particular changes there that would be completely rational, largely overdue, anticipated on many fronts and totally sane. But the organization would literally eat that person alive. <laughs> you know, would just like would just like <laughs> strangle them from their toes. And so I, I think that that's one of the challenges of this business. And I'm sure Zaslav doesn't want to hear that because he wants to be able to to fit the sprawling nature of CNN onto a spreadsheet. But the organization is used to being managed a certain way, and part of that is because Jeff Bukas, when he was running Time Warner, basically treated all these companies like they were individual holding companies. And, and they had so much autonomy and, and CNN had so much autonomy under Zucker that it's hard to imagine it being blended into this larger organization that has a more sort of corporate vibe and corporate thief. I'm skeptical that Lick is going to be able to continue this hands-off 
management style for very long. I have a feeling that he'll be in the newsroom floor before we know it. He'll be leading the 9 a.m. call. And it's hard to be to be light touch in that world. I don't know. I, I worked there under three CNN presidents. Right. John Klein, Mark Whitaker, and then Zucker. And Whitaker is a good example. Like he came in as a serious sort of like media news guy, print guy. And, you know, he was very hands off. He did some cool things. I mean, like he, Zucker gets credit for the Anthony Bourdain thing. Like Mark Whitaker and Virginia Mosley actually brought Anthony Bourdain to CNN, uh, not Jeff Zucker. But like he was rarely present. Like, and, and you can tell that like, reporters, anchors, executive producers, like it's a volatile business. They need feedback. They need pats on the back. A lot of those people are insecure and like you need the boss to be like, hey, good job or like whatever. And there's just a lot of anxiety, insecurity, high pressure on every single day, on every show, at every minute of the day. And it's a, it's a full-time job, man. It's going to be hard. Yeah, I think so too. I also imagine that there are probably going to be some tough choices in this guy's future. They have to fill nine o'clock. Yeah. That's going to be a very public decision. And uh, it seems to me that the, the most important point that he's trying to telegraph, and, and it's so important that that they can get a bunch of other small things wrong and it wouldn't matter, is that CNN is going to be post-partisan, non-partisan, whatever. That, that, you know, to, your, to your point of your critique about the Zucker era, that new CNN, lit CNN, is going to be much more down the middle, thoughtful, not screaming, talking, hitting. But I wonder how hard that is going to be in a era where the Supreme Court appears to be overturning Roe v. Wade and, and there and Donald Trump appears to potentially be considering very seriously now running for president. There are uh, ratings concerns that I'm sure um, the talent want to uh, you know, will be very very aware of, and, and we could be re-entering a very high stakes tense news environment where it sounds nice to say, yeah, we'll let cooler heads prevail, but um, that has not been the formula of the last half decade of this, of this industry and this art form. And I'm not so sure that the current events are conspiring to, to make it any easier moving forward. No. And, and one thing I will say too, I mean, ratings at CNN, and this is true for MSNBC, go up in election years and then they go down in between. I'm sort of personally curious to see how the Lick era handles DeSantis versus Disney. You know, so much of our politics now is culture war obsessed and, and focused. And those are programming challenges and they're going to require a, a really, really light touch. Agree. All right, man. Have a good week. See you soon. You too, buddy. I'll check in with you next week. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 